Forgive my slight hoarseness. The scripture this morning is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 and 20 through 26. During this time, the family of believers was a company of about 120 persons. Peter stood among them and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture that the Holy Spirit announced beforehand through David had to be fulfilled. This was the scripture concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. This happened even though he was one of us and received a share of this ministry. It is written in the Psalm scroll, Let his home become deserted, and let there be no one living in it, and give his position of leadership to another. Therefore, we must select one of those who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus lived among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken from us. This person must become along with us a witness to his resurrection. So they nominated two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, Lord, you know everyone's deepest thoughts and desires. Show us clearly which one you have chosen from among these two to take the place of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. When they cast lots, the lot fell on Matthias. He was added to the eleven apostles. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Kathy. So as I mentioned at the outset, this is the final week of our series titled A Cracked Foundation. For the past few weeks, we've been discussing what it means for the church to have been formed on the humanity, the cracked foundation that was Peter. But to also be reminded that despite this, God is still working out God's purposes in and through us, the modern church today. Even though we have our own faults and our own flaws, God is still working out God's kingdom purposes through us and invites all of us, the people of God, to be a part of that, to be a vital part of it. So in this, the fifth and final week of our series, we're going to see how this is playing out in Peter's life now in Acts and in Jerusalem. Hopefully we'll be able to correlate that to our lives today in our modern world. In some ways, though, in our society, if you think about this, we, we kind of have a culture of, of idolizing bad people, right? You know, if you think, you think about it, we have this, this idealization of what it means to be kind of a bad person, right? You think about James Dean, right? In Hollywood of his day, James Dean was the icon for the bad boy. In his own life and in the movies, he kind of personified what it means to be a rebel, right? A little bit outside the norm. Marilyn Monroe was quoted as once saying, I never said I was a good girl, right? And so she kind of personified, typified a little bit of that herself. I did a little bit of digging on the Internet. This kind of sparked something for me, and so I did a little digging on the Internet to see what come, came up about this. And, and there came up an article that was titled, Be a Bad Girl, right? Are you guys interested in what this said by any chance? It's kind of a humorous article. It's, it's not intended to encourage people to be really bad by nature, but it's just it's kind of funny what it meant to be kind of that icon of it or to adopt kind of the ideology of it. So ladies, get out your pens. Here we go, all right? 
if you want to take notes. There's three steps to being a bad girl, according to this article. The first is that you have to have the right looks, and this entails picking the right shoes, wearing the right amount of makeup, wearing the right sunglasses, wearing black and leather, but not always, right? getting the right tattoo in the right place, being a trendsetter, not a follower, being comfortable with your own sex appeal, but not being high maintenance. That's what it means for the first part to be the right look. All right, so you got all that? Did you write that all down? Guys, are you taking notes too? No, yeah, okay, just in case you want to share. All right, so the second aspect of it is embrace the bad girl attitude, right? And this entails showing confidence in yourself. Avoid being desperate. Leave a little bit of mystery about who you are. Be a tease. Be independent, fun, and strong. Don't apologize for every little thing, only the big things. Find your passion, have a career, embrace your own story, and take the lead. Don't be a follower. That's what it means to embrace the attitude of it. And then the third component, they say in the article, is to be adventurous, which means picking the right ride, or for those of us that don't know the euphemism of that, picking the right car is what that means. Travel, be daring, enjoy sports, be a classy drinker, whatever in the world that might mean, right? Don't be a princess, eat with gusto, and listen to classic rock and roll like Joan Jett, because Joan Jett personifies a bad girl, right? Okay? So, did you get all that down? I saw your pens moving. Right? And if you didn't get it all down, but you want to know more, you can email me. My email address is on the worship guide, Jim H., right? I'll send it to you, no problem whatsoever. I won't even tell anybody that you sent me a note about it. And to be honest with you, I did look on the Internet for an article about how to be a bad boy, but it just didn't pop up that fast. And I didn't have that much time to research it any further, all right? So I did look. Here's the thing that I would say to you is, well, I'm amazed, or should I say I'm perplexed, by the fact that an innocent baby born into this world can experience things that dramatically change them and change them to where they become the worst expression of our humanity. That a child can be formed and shaped to become someone that expresses the worst of our humanity. When you think about it, right? I'll give you a couple instances. I, I really doubt that Mama Hitler imagined her son Adolf would grow up to commit the atrocities that he did. I don't believe anybody brings a child into this world intending to form and shape them into a mass murderer, right? She probably did what she, most moms did. I would assume she would nurture him. And she dreamed that he would become a good part of his society, do something positive. And yet what we know is somewhere in his experience, things formed and shaped him in such a way that he became responsible for some of the most heinous crimes any human could perpetrate on another person. I don't believe that Charles Manson's mom ever thought he would become a maniacal cult leader, and yet he did as well. Right? Something in his life formed and shaped him in such a way that he would amass a, a young group of people, about a hundred or so followers in what he called the family, his little cult, and he would set out on this countercultural adventure in such a way that they would go on a killing spree in August of 1969. 
I don't think anybody brings a child into this world with the intentions of them becoming a demonstration, a lived-into example of the worst of who we are as humans. And yet people do. They become people who have a total disregard for others' humanity. I think what we as Christians hope for and what we want to promote is a dramatically different expression of the human existence in life. We believe, and most importantly, we live in the power of the Holy Spirit that we believe can transform every single one of us into the very image of our supreme example, which is Jesus. That all of us can be transformed into the image of Christ. We seek a dramatic change in our lives that is for the best, that promotes the best, not only for our own lives, but for the world around us. We see this happen. And I I think that's what happens for Peter as well. If you think about it, early in his journey in the Gospels, he is a, a demonstration of our humanity. His cracks, his flaws, they all come out on the pages as we read the stories. But now Peter is one who has gone from failing in his faith walk to now walking confidently in his faith as is seen in the book of Acts. Now, if you recall with me just some of the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, I'll remind you of some of these moments of Peter in the Gospels, right, that that show he misses the mark of being a disciple. On the ship with Jesus fishing at the wrong time of the day, Peter, in the moment where he catches so many fish, he falls down before Jesus and he says, I am a sinner. You need to leave my presence, right? But Jesus sees in Peter what Peter doesn't recognize in himself in that moment, a faith that Jesus can use and build upon for the kingdom of God's purposes. You think about it later on, on another boat, in the middle of a raging sea, Peter strands all of his fellow disciples. He climbs out of the boat and attempts to walk on water, but we also know that Peter begins to sink because he isn't fully focused on Jesus. He begins to see the raging sea around him. And again, we see some of the, the tepid nature of his faith, his crack, his flaw. In the garden, of course, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go a little bit further. He says to them, watch and pray with me. Wait here. Watch and pray with me. But yet Peter and the others all fall asleep. Jesus comes out multiple times and encourages them to wake up, to watch and to pray. Each time they fall asleep. When Judas and the temple authorities come to the garden, according to one of the Gospels, to arrest Jesus... Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Think about his impetuous nature in that moment. Instead of hearing the beatitudes of Jesus that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, Peter's still living much as the world would live. He reacts like the world reacts. We also remember that Peter, in the room, at the final Passover meal with Jesus, has professed his undying loyalty to the Master. He has said to him, even if I must die with you, I will die. And yet before breakfast even comes, we know that Peter also denies. He recants these words three times. You'd think that Jesus, as a master and as teacher, would finally get the point and he would just give up on Peter, right? Peter's such a flawed character in these stories, you think he would just give up on him. And I think most of us probably would give up on Peter as well. We'd think that Peter has no possible chance of ever changing. And yet, Jesus doesn't. 
Jesus sees the redemptive potential that is in Peter, that's for Peter. Jesus saw how Peter would become the rock, the foundation upon which the church would be built. Jesus knew the dramatic change that was about to take place in Peter's heart and life. You think about the moment on the beach. The risen Jesus has come. He's met his disciples there. He cooks them breakfast after their night of fishing. And in that moment, he speaks to Peter. He calls him by name and he says, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, you know, Lord, I love you. And each time in that conversation, Jesus says to him, then tend and feed my sheep. He extends to Peter an invitation one more time to experience that change of heart and life. And Acts leads us to believe that Peter has now taken on the leadership of this small early church, this 120 people. And we believe that because he's the only disciple who's actually named in the early chapters of Acts. He's the one that takes the lead in the selection of this new apostle that takes Judas's place. He is the one who addresses the jeering crowd on the day of Pentecost. Peter is the one who calls upon the crowd to see the miraculous sign of God's Holy Spirit as an invitation for them, an invitation to come and change their hearts and their lives. Peter is the one who comes to the begging cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple. And in that moment, in that counter, give to him what he has to give. This beggar is used to receiving a monetary gift from anybody who would give one as they enter the temple. He asks Peter for the same thing, and Peter looks at him and says, Look at me. I don't have any money to give you, but I will give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the beggar does in that moment. Peter gives to him what he has to give, the name of Jesus Christ. We also know that Peter is the one who's empowered by the Holy Spirit to test the Ananias and Sapphira and to unveil their scheme and how they were going to cheat God. We, we see Peter finally in Acts living into the vision of what God had in mind for him, this changed person, the one that God would found the church on. I've said this before. I, I still believe it. I hold it firmly as a truth. I believe that God has a vision for every single one of our lives. Our talents and our skills all may be different, but all of us are part of the body of Christ. We play a unique role in the body of Christ, and we should share in the common vision of what we experience and offer to the world, which is what Peter did in that moment. Think about it. Peter said, I can give you what I have in this moment. Jesus of Nazareth. I can give you the name of the one who can forgive your sins, make your life whole. I can give to you Jesus who can bring a dramatic change in your life. I wonder if we offer that to the world ourselves. I think maybe it's predicated on this first. I wonder how many of us have actually experienced that dramatic change. And and how would we quantify the dramatic change of heart and life for ourselves? Is it evident in our own lives? And in the story that we tell in words and in deeds to the world, right? I think about your elevator speech. Someone once classified it this way. If you spent two minutes in an elevator with a stranger, what would you say about your journey with Jesus? What would be the words that you would use that would demonstrate a changed heart and a changed life for you? Now, that's provided that we Methodists could get over our introversion about our faith because we're kind of introverted at times about these things. 
think about it. What would you say, right? I spent a little bit of time crafting that and thinking about it for myself. And I, I think this is what I would say to someone if, if the conversation came up and I was provoked to do so. I would say I was a wanderer, right? I spent time in the military, but that really wasn't where I was supposed to be. I spent time in the business world, but that wasn't where God wanted to use my time and my talents. And so one day God spoke through my lovely wife, Margaret, and my pastor, and I heard that call to come back to ministry because that's the place where I'm supposed to be. This is the place where God wants to use me. A change, a dramatic kind of change of course in my life. And so I've gone from being a wandering disciple to a follower. Someone who's trying his best to follow Christ through this life. What would be your two-minute speech? How would you say to someone that you've experienced that dramatic change of heart in life. And what would be the evidence? You know, we think about it in this way. We talk about time, talent, and treasure as the evidence of who we are, our public witness to the world. How are we giving of our time to demonstrate to the world that our goal in life is to serve God in Jesus Christ, not our own human objectives? How are we using our talents to promote God's work of salvation that is for all people, to promote the coming kingdom of God? Or do we spend most of our time using them to build our own small little kingdoms? How are we giving of our treasure? Are we using our treasure to support the church because we believe the church is the agent of God's transformation in the world? Are we using our treasure for other things in this world? I mean, we could go back again to the saying of Mark Twain, right? Mark Twain once said that actions speak louder than words. Another young woman named Tiffany Madison put it this way. She said, if we don't fight for what we stand for with our passionate words and our honest actions, then do we really stand for anything? Because this is what we believe. We believe that the world is in need. That people are in need of some kind of dramatic change in this world. A dramatic change for the good. And what we have as the Christian community to offer to them is the name of Jesus Christ, the one who can heal all of our wounds. But it takes us experiencing that dramatic change ourselves to go from being pseudo-Christian community that embraces part of its bad side in the world and part of the good side of the church to being ones who make a dramatic decision and follow Christ. So here's what I hope you hear today and and can take away from this moment. To be reminded that, that we embrace in this world an image, an image of what we think makes us unique and acceptable, sometimes to the world around us. But the dramatic change that Jesus called Peter to helped him become the person that God wanted him to become, to do God's work, to honor God, not necessarily the world he lived in. And I believe that God desires the exact same thing for all of us who are disciples today. To be passionate about God's work in this world, to be passionate about honoring God through our lives, and to be people who experience that dramatic change of heart and life that lead us in that direction. So here's your invitation for today. If you find yourself seeking more the attention of the world, maybe then today is a time for us to confess that and to allow God to just work in our hearts and our minds, to allow God to convince us that there's a better way to live in this world. 
Or maybe for others of us to hear the call of God to stand for God's kingdom purposes, to give our time to the mission projects that we are a part of and, and embrace, to give our talent to it as well, to help Allie with a children's project or neighbor to neighbor or baby grace. There's multiple ways in which we can serve with our time and our talent, but also be very generous with our treasure, to know that this is the place God wants to transform the world through and to be generous in the way in which we do it. To be reminded most of all that Jesus saw the potential in Peter. He saw him as the rock, the foundation upon which the church would be built. And in spite of his many flaws, God was able to accomplish that. And it's the same today. In spite of our many flaws, God sees the potential in every single one of us, the potential for us to continue the transforming work of God that's in this world, that God's perfect kingdom might come. It's predicated on how we respond if we'll allow God to use each one of us for this dramatic work, this dramatic change.